Well, a very pleasant good morning to all of you. And uh, are you awake? Good morning. Okay, all right, there we go. We're, we're here. That's good. Um, uh, good to be with all of you this morning. Grateful for temperatures warming up. Um, you may notice my thankfulness for the cold may have dropped off a little bit verbally, though I did enjoy snow shoveling. So just for the record, I still like the cold in general, but... Now that my nose hairs don't freeze as soon as I walk outside, uh, that is a little nice, I'll admit. Um, but no, glad, glad to be together uh, on the Lord's Day. It's, it's a blessing to be together. And, and I tell you what, Mike, you nailed it. Of course, that might have been Laura. I mean, we don't know. Uh, Mike actually picked his songs, but you know. <laughs> um, but no, I, I really, really appreciate those songs. He pretty much traced my sermon perfectly, uh, about as perfectly as you possibly could. So uh, grateful for his thoughtfulness. And grateful for the thoughtfulness of all those who, who lead us in song and appreciative of several of you who have, have asked me you know, if there's a song that would go well or how we could tie the song service into the sermon. That's, that's uh, really encouraging and super helpful, I think, for us to, to draw as much as we can from our time together in worship to God. This morning brings us to another One God, One Story lesson. It has been two months since we've done one of these, and so maybe a little bit of recap is in order. Um, but I took last month off to work in that sermon that I had done from the, the talk that I did at winter camp about redeeming our screen time. Uh, so this month we are in the book of Judges. Uh, but real quick, a recap to kind of get us back up to where we are in the biblical narrative. Uh, because the point of this series is to help us go through each book of the Bible and see how it does tie into the biblical narrative as a whole. Uh, so let's kind of get ourselves caught up here in, in the series um, so in Genesis, we looked at the sign of the covenant in Genesis chapter 17, uh, and where kind of all this started when God made promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then he made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and then in Genesis 17, he gave Abraham the sign of the covenant, tying all those promises together and also calling for covenant obedience from Abraham. Uh, and that's what he has expected of his people throughout the ages as the, the biblical narrative continues. And then in Exodus, we looked at how God is a God of deliverance and how uh, God shows his people that he's going to do what it takes to make good on his covenant promises that he made to Abraham. Even if it involves supernatural acts of deliverance, God is going to keep his promises. Uh, and that, again, is, is a truth that rings throughout the biblical narrative. And then we looked at Leviticus and how God divides and he names. And that's, that's part of who, who God is, how, how there are holy things and there are unholy things. And God separates the two. He divides them. And then he wants his people to be among the holy. And then we looked in Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, about when the Lord is with us. Uh, and that's the account of the spies spying out the land. And then their unfaithful report, their wicked, their evil report. And then when the people tried to go in anyway, even though God said, you're not going to succeed, you're not going to go in because you were unfaithful and did not trust me. They went anyway and they didn't succeed and they were defeated. Um, and if they had gone with God, though, they would have succeeded. And, and that lesson showed us the timeless truth uh, through Scripture that God's people must always choose to fight when he commands it. But victory is certain when you're fighting on the Lord's side and at the Lord's command. Uh, and that is true for us as we fight sin and evil today as well. And in Deuteronomy, we looked, we looked at the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, the call for all God's people of all time to love him most. That's something that Jesus picks up on in the Gospels, uh, and that is certainly something we need to consider today as well. And then most recently, we looked in Joshua chapter 24 at the renewal of the covenant. 
And that lesson encouraged us to consider our spiritual history and to choose God alone. Uh, To look back over all God has done, how faithful He is, and uh, to renew our covenant with Him that we will be faithful to Him uh, as He has been so faithful to us. So that brings us to the book of Judges this morning. The book of Judges opens by picking up where the book of Joshua left off. Uh, with the death of Joshua. That's where Judges starts. Israel has come into the land, but the conquest is not complete. There's still much conquest to be done uh, in the land of, of Canaan, or the land of Israel, as, as it will now be. Uh, but there are, there are more Canaanite nations that they need to defeat and conquer. So w- with Joshua's legacy of conquering according to the word of the Lord in view, in Judges 1.1, the people inquire of the Lord as to who is to fight against the Canaanites. And indeed, that's a praiseworthy first action for them to take uh, and, and a way of making decisions that is worthy uh, of imitating. However, unfortunately, that's pretty much the high point of the book right there. <laughs> it doesn't get much better from there, as indicated by the downward spiral uh, in the picture and in the title of the lesson today. Uh, from here, the people quickly slip very far into a cycle of repeated abandonment of God and abandonment of his covenant with them. But the thing about this book is that it's not just the same repeated cycle with the same effects every time. Rather, the book is less of a linear cycle that just repeats and really more of a downward spiral as Israel devolves further and further into being more wicked and more depraved every time the cycle repeats. Uh, By the end of the book, the nation finds itself in total moral crisis. They have lost what it means to be good, to be God's people, uh, to have a standard from on high. And that extends from the leaders of the nation, even from the judges who were not great people, by and large, all the way down to the families of the nation and how fathers treat their daughters and how parents treat their children in general. And so because of this, Judges has a sad but important place in the biblical narrative. The book of Judges shows us what actually happens when we do fail to obey God completely. It shows us why God gave us the commands and the precepts that he did in the first place, as well as the horrors that unfold for those who would dismiss them or ignore them. But it also shows us a great deal about God and how he reacts to such rebellion, what God does when we are unfaithful. But before the book records the people actually beginning this downward spiral uh, into idolatrous disaster, the anonymous historian who wrote the book gives us an overview of what Israel continually does in this book. And so in looking to see how the book connects to that overall biblical narrative, which is what we're looking at, Uh, This introductory section is extremely helpful, I think, in showing us a big-picture perspective of how Israel got themselves into this mess and why they can't seem to get themselves out of it. And so the remainder of the first section of the book, up through verse 26 of chapter 1, describes efforts to continue conquering Canaanite cities. I didn't realize there were so many C's right there, continuing conquering Canaanite cities and nations. But then in verse 27, the, the tone starts to shift. Verse 27 of chapter 1, we start to learn that six of the 12 tribes fail to drive out the Canaanites completely from their land. They don't get the job done. And that takes us through the end of chapter 1. 
It's quite a lengthy description of all that they failed to do. And so that's where I want to pick up is in chapter 2, right there, where God actually responds to all of this, beginning in verse 1 of Judges chapter 2. Judges 2 and verse 1 reads like this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. A lot of things we learn right off the bat from Israel's disobedience and what's going on here. But the first thing that I would suggest to you that we see from Israel's failure and from the the things that happen consequently because of their failure we see that God has a reason for his commands. God has a reason for his commands. As the Israelites entered the promised land, God had one particularly strong instruction as it related to the conquest of the land, and that is destroy the Canaanite nations completely. Wipe them out. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, uh, Moses tells them, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Whoa! It's intense! What? Kill them all? I thought God was a God of love and of mercy. I mean, it just sounds overly intense what God's asking of them. And Judges 1 records how even when the the Israelites failed to drive those nations out completely and wipe them out entirely, they were able to put those nations to forced labor, uh, which would have been of a great economical benefit to the people of Israel to have that labor force uh, built in. I mean, that, that sounds like a better arrangement for both Israel and for the other nations than just killing them all, right? I mean, slavery is no good, but it's better than being dead, so why don't we just do this? That makes more sense. And really, that's not the only time something like that happens, where Israel modifies God's commands to what they think makes more sense to them. And if we're honest, we can kind of see their point when they do this. Why would we kill them all when we can use them as labor? That makes a lot more sense. I mean, it's better for them, better for us, right? Makes sense. But what's the problem with this? It disregards God's omniscience. It disregards God's sovereignty, God's right to reign over his nation. But ultimately, what it displays is an absence of trust in God's promises. It displays an absence of trust in God's ability to know what is best for his people. Yeah, maybe there is logic to Israel's modification of God's actual commands. But when human logic tries to compete with the mind of the all-knowing eternal God who we studied about last week, who searches and knows all things, going by human logic suddenly becomes anything but logical. Yeah, maybe it's logical for us to do something, but when we stack it up against God's infinite mind, it makes no sense at all. In other words, 
maybe Israel thought they had a good reason for not completely obeying God's command. But in reality, because he is God, God had a, me- a better reason for giving the command in the first place. But not only does God have a reason for the commands he gives, but this account shows us that God's commands are motivated by his concern for the souls and the holiness of his people. It doesn't take a terribly close reading of Judges chapter 2 to realize why God is so upset. Why is he so upset about this? Well, notice the last part of verse 2. God reminds them that he commanded them, saying, You shall break down their altars. And then he says, But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? That's just in Judges. If we continue reading in Deuteronomy chapter 7, after God gives that original command to completely destroy the Canaanite nations, it becomes crystal clear why he is giving them such a drastic command. Beginning in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 7, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. And he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For, notice this, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God wasn't upset because they broke some arbitrary rule that wasn't actually that important. He was upset because of the spiritual threat that was now present to his chosen people, his holy people, because they failed to completely obey him. It was never supposed to be that way, but because they failed to honor God's commands in their entirety, now there is a spiritual threat to the souls and the holiness of his people. And so, yeah, Israel didn't fully grasp, it seems, the command, uh, the reason for God's commands. But that didn't mean God's reasons weren't completely valid. And more than that, spiritually critical. And guess what? This truth about God continues to be just as true today as it was in the days of the conquest of the land of Canaan. I mean, do we ever get frustrated by all the limitations that are placed on us as Christians? I mean, generally, we're happy living our Christian life, but there are times where we know God would not want us to do something, and so we realize that, but maybe we get kind of bitter about that. That looks like fun. That looks enjoyable. Why can't I do that? I mean, do we ever look at all the worldly things that Scripture would keep us from, things we shouldn't be involved in as God's people, and think to ourselves, I don't think that's really necessary. I mean, yeah, it's probably... Not the greatest idea, but it's not inherently wrong. It's not horrible. There are worse things. I mean, this person does it and got away with it. And why, why is this limitation being placed on us? I think a lot of people, maybe, maybe not us as Christians, but maybe so, have this idea that God is up there and he's just trying to keep us from enjoying our lives. He's trying to make us miserable. He's trying to keep us from any kind of pleasure, any kind of enjoyment in this life. Uh, And so he creates all these commands, and he gives all these principles that limit what we can do. And that's what God's about. He just wants us to be miserable and not enjoy anything. But I think this account in Judges shows us that God is doing nothing of the sort. God's commands, God's precepts are given for a very good reason. 
one that has nothing to do with wanting us to be miserable and everything to do with wanting our spiritual good. That's why God gives those commands. And Paul says in Romans 15 that the Old Testament writings were written for our learning. And indeed, we can learn a great deal from Israel's successes, but we learn just as much, if not more, from their failures as we learn what not to do. And really, I think that principle is never more on display than it is in the book of Judges. It is Israel's great time of moral crisis. Israel failed to fully obey God's commands, seemingly thinking they had a better idea, despite the fact that he'd explained how these commands were for their spiritual good and their physical good as well, and that if they disobeyed, they would disobey to their own demise, both physically and spiritually. So, on this point, let's learn from their failure and resolve never to stop it at at partial obedience to God's commands, and never to think that God's precepts are, are not so important as to need our complete, our total obedience. And let's realize that anytime God gives an inspired command, even to us under the new covenant, he has a reason for doing so. It has everything to do with our spiritual good. That's what he wants. And so we ought to obey completely as we just trust his wisdom. So that's one major point I think we learn here. But that's not all we learn from Israel's failures in Judges. This introduction to one of Israel's darkest periods, spiritually and physically, also shows us that there are consequences, even for not completely following God's commands. Notice with me, beginning in verse 11 of Judges 2, the text says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Interestingly, the Israelites mostly did what God had asked of them. They got it 90% there. Got a lot of the people cleared out of the land as God wanted. And yet, they still suffered dire spiritual and physical consequences that God had promised if they didn't destroy them at all. And the influence of the peoples that they had left in the land and not destroyed did not take long to infiltrate even the nation of the Lord's chosen people. Soon enough, they had indeed abandoned the Lord and gone after the gods of the nations around them. The crazy thing is, this would have been unthinkable just one generation ago when the people pledged themselves completely, wholly to the Lord as they renewed the covenant with Joshua right before he died. That was two chapters ago at the very end of the book of Joshua. They said, no, no, we will serve the Lord wholeheartedly with all that is in us. And Joshua says, well, you're not able to because he's a holy God. And they say, no, 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 we will. And then very soon after that, where do we find them? And total idolatry. But their failure to completely obey the Lord's command to wipe out the Canaanite nations really did lead to swift departure from God as they instead began to serve the idols of the land. And yeah, Israel mostly did what God asked of them in the conquest, but they didn't totally do it. So as a result, they suffered 
what are very similar to, if not the same consequences that would have befallen them had they completely ignored God's command to begin with. All these things God said that would come upon them if they didn't destroy them, they didn't fight them and take them down, that's what came upon them, even though they mostly did it. I think that illustrates an important spiritual principle that rings true throughout Scripture and is even picked up on by Jesus himself. In, in Matthew 6 and verse 24, he says, You cannot serve two masters. Matthew 12 and verse 30, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me. I think what he's getting at is what we see here in Judges, is that serving God, it can't be a partial matter. It can't be incomplete. Israel got really close to total obedience and total devotion, but according to Jesus, really close isn't good enough. Serving God is not a matter of there being this spectrum between total obedience and utter disobedience and rebellion. And where you just want to be on this half of the spectrum, you just want to make sure you're close, closer to the good than the really bad. It's not like that. Jesus says you're either completely serving God and obeying him fully, you're with him, or you're an enemy of God. You are against him. And I think in our day and time, we don't deal well with absolutes. That's just the nature of our, of our time. As a matter of fact, we find ourselves in the middle of our own downward spiral as a society at large. Not to be overly dramatic, but I think we can see the reality that our culture is spiraling quickly away from the concept of absolute truth. We're hurtling quickly down the path of postmodernism. We're, we're quickly leaving behind what little regard or concept of truth that we have left. That's the world we live in. But God has something to say about that, and that is there is absolute truth. No matter how far you want to distance yourself from it, there is absolute truth. There is a standard, and it is me, God says. And Jesus says one such absolute truth is there are only two possibilities for where you are spiritually. Either completely a total servant of God, or you're an enemy of God. And even if you do most of what God has asked of you, that is not complete and total obedience. Therefore, your consequences will be those of somebody who is actually just an enemy of God outright. It's easy for us to start thinking we can get by spiritually, by just doing most things right. But the Israel of Judges 1 and 2 shows us that that's just not the case. And now as Christians, we know there's a little more to the story than just either you obey perfectly or you're out. But that is a truth that we need to understand in order to appreciate what we have as Christians. But while we're thinking about the consequences of failure to totally obey God, I would point something else out to you from Judges chapter 2. And that is this. The consequences for our incomplete obedience do not stop with us. Those consequences are not limited to us. Back up with me to verse 6 of chapter 2 in Judges. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also 
were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. What I want you to notice here is there's a generation gap between chapter 2 up through verse 9 and then verse 11 through the rest of the chapter. Verse 10 is the dividing point where they say there arose another generation that did not know the Lord. And so the generation that failed to fully follow God's instructions with respect to the conquest that we talked about in chapter 1 also failed, apparently, to fully obey his direction to teach their children the law, to teach them to know the Lord, and to teach them of all his wondrous works. And while their children were not directly punished for their parents' sin, that's not what this is, but the failures of that first generation had consequences that far outlived their entire generation. It says that entire generation died, and then there's this other generation that starts to bear the consequences for their spiritual failures. And these consequences are not minor either. While on the flip side, the second generation has their own free will and bears the ultimate responsibility for their sin, at the same time, it would be wrong to think that their parents' failures to destroy those idolatrous nations and their parents' failure to teach them to truly know the Lord had no spiritually harmful effects on them. It certainly did. And so the truth that we need to see here is that when we fail to obey God completely, the consequences don't stop with us either. If we fail to fully tear down the idols in our lives, get rid of them and serve the Lord only, should we be surprised if our children pick them up and say, hey, this looks pretty good, I'll serve that. If we fail to fully teach our families to know the Lord and know his mighty works and his, his great deeds, should we be shocked if our children and our grandchildren choose to leave God behind, seeing no real difference between partial obedience and no obedience? This extends beyond families, too. Even if you don't have kids, as the younger generation in our congregation looks to you, and they are looking to you, I'll tell you that right now, But as they look to you for an example of what it means to serve God, if you fail to fully give yourself to God, how do you expect there to be anyone here in 30 years who's still interested in serving God wholeheartedly? If we don't set that example, how are we surprised when there are spiritual consequences down the line? A little analogy. When I needed therapy and medication for my OCD, and my anxiety, my depression, I was resistant to it for quite some time. But the one thing that finally put me over the edge to decide to try therapy and medication was that I realized my mental struggles were having an effect on Cassie. For some reason, it wasn't enough motivation for me to get help for me, but when I realized this is having a consequence on somebody I love and that I care about, okay, I'll get help. And I did. Maybe that's the motivation some of us need to give ourselves more fully to the Lord. And if it is, then undoubtedly this account of the judges, along with the rest of the Bible, shows us that indeed the consequences of our incomplete obedience or our failure to fully dedicate ourselves to the Lord, those consequences extend far beyond ourselves or even our lifetime to those we care about. So if we truly care about the spiritual health of our children, our grandchildren, and even just the younger people in our congregation or in the Lord's body who are in our lives, then the book of Judges serves as a sober call for all of us to totally obey the Lord ourselves, to dedicate ourselves to him with that in view. All right, that's three points. 
but I got two more. <laughs> it's not your classic three-point sermon. There's just too much in this chapter that uh, helps us see how this book fits into the biblical narrative. So another thing I would suggest to you that we see in this chapter and that we can learn from Israel's failures is this. Incomplete repentance can never lead to total deliverance. It just doesn't. And Israel demonstrates this over and over again as they go through this cycle and they make a form of repentance, but then they are delivered right back into the hands of their enemies. And the truth is, God is not pleased with lip service, nor is he satisfied with a form of repentance like Israel gave him in this time, a form of repentance that just is trying to do the bare minimum to avoid punishment. Turns out that's what Israel was doing. They weren't really turning back to the Lord and saying, we are yours, we will follow everything you ask of us. They just didn't want to be punished. And so they said, God, please help us. And then when when they were done with that, they were done with God. Now, this seems to be a, a recurring thing, though, in Israel. Israel seems to turn to the Lord when they find themselves being justly punished for their idolatry and breaking the covenant that they had made with God. They seem to do that a lot. But yet, as God hears their cry and he delivers them, which shows us just how merciful, just how gracious God is that he delivers them, even when they cry out to him. But as soon as they're safe from their enemy who had oppressed them before long, we, found out, we find out that they turn every time right back to the idolatry that earned them the punishment and the plundering in the first place. What? What kind of sense does that make? But what this ultimately reveals is that they're turning to the Lord, which is what the text describes it as. It says they turn to the Lord. We find out their turning to the Lord was more turning to the Lord to do for them what they wanted in that moment than it was turning to the Lord to be their God and their true king. And how does God respond to this? He's not satisfied with it. Forms of repentance that are not actually true repentance, but just a desire to avoid consequences and just doing the bare minimum to, to get that, those do not please God. And so ultimately, their incomplete repentance could never lead to total deliverance. If we want actual deliverance, permanent deliverance, then incomplete repentance is never going to get us there. God is merciful in that he was willing to take them back. He's willing to take them back and do his covenant after they had sinned. And so he wasn't looking for perfection. That, that ship had sailed, long sailed. They made a mess of things. But what he was looking for was True repentance, full repentance, going back to God and saying, you'll be my king. I'm giving myself to you. And so what does that look like? It looks like not just going to God to get what you want, but going to God with a broken heart that acknowledges, I need you, God. A willingness to no longer rebel, but a willingness to submit to him in everything. That's true repentance. And Israel's failure to do that led them right back into suffering at the hands of their enemies, despite God wanting to deliver them. And so what do we learn from this? Well, just as God wasn't pleased with fake repentance or partial repentance when Israel tried it, neither will he be pleased with us if we try it. The temptation can be really real for us to treat God as like a vending machine, to just try to do what we need to get the prize of avoiding punishment. And then when we're done with that, we're done with God. We throw him in the trash. But the Israelites here show us that that kind of approach to God can never lead us to what we really need, 
which is restoration of a relationship with God. If we think of God as someone who we can use by just doing what it takes to get him to do what we want, and then we can move on, then we are doomed spiritually from the start. If we think that way, then what we are doing is we're distorting the way things actually are and should be, which is God is creator, God is king of all, and we are his servants. But if we view God as somebody we use to get what we want, we've got it all backwards. That's how things get upside down, like we've talked about many times before. And so true repentance is accepting that order, that God is king and we are servants, and submitting to it and saying, I accept this, this is going to be my reality. Anything less than that just isn't repentance and therefore can never actually restore us to God. Not because of some failure on God's part, because he's not powerful enough to save us with that kind of repentance, but because with that mindset, we are still in rebellion. And while we are rebelling against God, he can't save someone who is actively fighting against him. And that's what we're doing if we don't totally repent, totally give ourselves to God as our king. And so just as God wasn't pleased with incomplete obedience in the first place, neither was he pleased with incomplete repentance when he offered Israel a second chance out of his mercy. All right, we're almost to the end here. But most of these lessons have been focused on learning from Israel's failures. So now I want to ask the question, what do we learn about God from this account? What what do we see about God here? And so as we wrap up this morning, here's the final point I want you to especially take with you this morning. I think really helps us see how Judges fits into the Bible's big picture narrative. And that point is, even when we are faithless and rebellious, God is faithful and merciful. Read with me verse 18 of Judges chapter 2. I actually start in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. But whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Notice this. For the Lord was moved to pity or compassion by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. They don't get this wrong. God is faithful, and part of being faithful is he is faithful to bring about promised judgment for covenant infidelity. If he says he'll judge you for something, he's going to judge you. And so undoubtedly, in the case of Israel during the period of the judges, God did not go back on his promise of judging their idolatrous rebellion. That's sending those nations in the first place that they were in this rough situation from. And that's what verses 13 and 14 describe for us. When Israel abandoned the Lord and served the Baals, well, he gave them over into the hands of their enemies as punishment for their spiritual adultery. But if God's mercy was predicated on his random decision not to carry out the punishment he said he was going to carry out, he wouldn't be a just God. If God said, I'm going to punish you, and then he just decided, well, I don't guess I will, actually. Then how are we supposed to trust him? to do what he says. And just as we wouldn't be able to trust his punishment, neither would we be able to fully trust his mercy. So if God God is faithful in doing what he said he would do as consequences for people who did not fully obey him, even if people who blatantly rebelled against him, but in addition to being just and faithful to fulfill his promises of judgment, God also shows his people kindness and gives them opportunity to repent and come back to him far beyond what they deserve. 
Especially notice that point, far beyond what they deserve. I mean, the children of Israel during this period, there's no doubt they're guilty. They are so clearly guilty of idolatry in every possible form. Positively and totally abandoning God. That's what the text tells us. They left God and they went to serve the idols. And so what they deserve really was punishment and punishment alone for their actions. That's what they deserve. And God would have been totally just to give them that and nothing else. But while God does justly punish them and allow them to suffer the consequences of their actions, he also does more than that. God also shows them mercy. He didn't do this because they deserved it. He didn't do it because they earned that mercy, but because of his pity, because of his compassion. Verse 18 says that when he saw the suffering of his people in the totally deserved consequences of their own sin, he was moved to pity. So in other words, while, while God's nature is perfect justice and perfect righteousness, another big part of God's nature is love. That's who God is. All those things. Yes, justice and righteousness, but also love. And really, that can be the only explanation for what God does here. And this entire book as we noted, Israel didn't even completely repent. And yet God still forgives and shows mercy and raises up deliverers. And time and time again, even though Israel forsakes the covenant, which really releases God from any responsibility to that covenant, their repeated wavering and infidelity only serves to set up a greater contrast with God's constant faithfulness, no matter their failures. The more unfaithful they get, it just shows how God being faithful all the time is all the more amazing. What an amazing God to be one who would have such mercy for a people who just keeps rebelling over and over and over and over again. But there's more to the story of Judges than just what happened to Israel during that period of moral crisis in the nation. And here's where it connects to us. So I ask the question, how does Judges connect to the overall biblical narrative as a whole? Let me suggest to you that the book of Judges is ultimately a picture, a shadow of what God would later do for the entirety of mankind by raising up the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, despite our faithlessness and our repeated rebellion. As much as we all like to think well of ourselves, it's human tendency, get it? But the truth is that we all fall into that category, the category of those who in our past have rebelled against God and against what he wants for our lives. And for many or even most of us, our rebellion, our sin, may not have been a one-time thing. Some of us rebelled and asked God to forgive us, and he did, and then yet still wandered away. In fact, probably most of us have done that in some form. And as nice as it would be to distance ourselves from Israel when they were at their absolute moral worst in this book of Judges, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're probably more similar to them than we like to admit. But the same God who they rejected and yet was merciful to them is the same God who we've rejected in our past. But he's been infinitely merciful to us, has he not? We've been rebels, just like Israel in the days of the judges. But here's the difference. Unlike the temporary, flawed deliverers of Israel, our deliverer is perfect. Our deliverer gave himself for us. 
Gideon, the, the first judge, well, not the first judge, but one of the, one of the first big judges that, that the text focuses on, he has this whole thing where he says, oh, I don't want to be king. But then he names his son, my dad is the king. That's what his son's name means. It doesn't seem very humble. It seems like he actually wants the power. Jesus wasn't that way. Not at all. Jesus gave himself, sacrificed his life for us, making him the ultimate deliverer. And so it's in Jesus and only in Jesus that we find this possibility of true transformation and full restoration to the Father. Despite our complete lack of deserving this, just like Israel in this period, we don't deserve that a bit. But despite that, because of our horrendous history of rebellion and failure to completely obey God, he gave his son willingly to make it possible, showing his mercy yet again. God has given his son who came to earth and did what Israel failed to do. He did what we failed to do as well, which is this, completely and totally obey the Father in everything. That was our failure. That was Israel's failure. And Jesus did it perfectly, what we couldn't do. He didn't need to do it. He already obeyed God perfectly as the Son. They were perfectly one, but yet he did it because we couldn't do it. Because only the person who didn't need to do that could do it for those of us who needed to but failed to. But here's the really amazing thing about this. Jesus didn't come to shame us and to say, look at me, I obeyed perfectly, you didn't. This just makes you look worse. That's not what he did. Rather, he came to show us what we should have done so that by the power of his saving grace, instead of falling deeper and deeper into sin like Israel did, we might be lifted by his love from that downward spiral and transformed instead into the image of Jesus himself. Love lifted us. And so we are transformed into the image of this perfect, complete servant of God the Father. What we all should have been, but were not. What Israel should have been, but was not. In Jesus, we can be that. And in doing so, through Jesus himself, we can once again be those true servants of the Father. We can be one with him. Does that describe your life this morning? Uh, My invitation to all of us today is to think about that question. If we're honest, we've all rebelled in our past. I don't think anyone here would put their hand up if I said, who's perfect? Who's who's never sinned? Probably not. Uh, But the question is, what have we done about it? What have we done about it? Yeah, we've sinned. But how have we moved from that? Have we acknowledged that trying to do things our own way doesn't work? Do we recognize that actually? Have we resolved to trust God's wisdom and his reasons for his commands? Do I do that in my life? Do I trust God's reasons even when they don't make sense to me? Have we truly given ourselves fully, not partially, but fully to obeying Jesus? Have we fully trusted in him as our great and ultimate deliverer? If you haven't ever given much thought to that, I want to encourage you to think about it. But even if you have, maybe even you've been a Christian for a really long time, a lot of us have, I still encourage you to think about it. Rededicate yourself to total obedience to God, trusting fully in the grace that is ours in Jesus. So we can help you with a spiritual need today. We'd love to do that. Or even just talk more about spiritual things. That's what we're here for each other for as a, as a family in Christ. Now, if you want to talk more about this, I'd love to talk more in the back. 
But if you have a spiritual need this morning and you know what you need to do about it and you want us to pray for you or baptize you into Christ, that's also what we're here for. So if you have a spiritual need this morning we can help you with, uh, come forward. Let us know about it, and we'd love to help you as we stand, as we sing.